We are in the book of Proverbs. We're continuing in the, uh, the book of Proverbs this morning. Um, and uh, before you get to your barbecues and your fireworks and all that stuff, we've got some work to do in this series. So we're going to be in Proverbs 27 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip open to Proverbs 27. You've got a device. Feel free to open it there as well. And we're just going to get straight into it this morning. Um, and uh, largely, the book of Proverbs talks about this issue quite a bit. And we've kind of been going uh, just like thematically in different chunks, like what piece should we take now or whatever. And so this one, we're going to be in Proverbs 27, specifically in verse 2. This is what it says. It says, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. Let me, I just want to read it again. Let someone else praise you and not, not your own mouth, an outsider, and not your own lips. The book of Proverbs talks about pride a ton. Yeah, it is all over the book of Proverbs, more so than even it talks about sluggards, which is what we talked about last weekend. Right? It, it consistently talks about a wise person is going to be humble, a fool is going to be prideful. Over and over and over again, it gets to this, this kind of idea and this issue, pride, that we see here in Proverbs, it, it is the, the single largest issue facing humanity. This issue right here, pride, is largely the root of 99% of sin that happens in the world. And we're going to get, I know it's a big claim, but we're going to get to that in just a second. So I want you to imagine for a sec that, that we're all the way back in 64 A.D., Okay, 64 AD in Rome specifically. You guys have all been to Rome, obviously, in 64 AD. So just recall that, that memory. But it's a vibrant, it's a bustling city. Everything's going on here. And there's a guy by the name of Emperor Nero. Many of you, if you've been around church for a long time, you kind of maybe have heard this name of, of Nero. Um, I actually had a, 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 a DVD, no, a CD burner back in the day, and the software was called Nero because of burning. For those of you who know what Nero did, that's anyway. Um, so that's what largely who he was. He had, and he has this crazy idea of building a dream palace. He wants the biggest palace that has ever existed. It's called the Domus Area, Aurea. I don't know. I don't speak that language. But it, right in the middle of Rome, right in the heart of Rome. And so he ruled over this entire empire from, from 54 to 68 AD, so about 15 years or so, 14 years. And this guy, more so than anything, had a massive ego. Okay, this guy, if you could just like imagine the most prideful person in the entire world, like that was Nero. In his head, he could do no wrong. It was impossible for him to do anything. And so he had like these serious delusions of grandeur, right? He thought he was this incredible musician. You guys have probably met people like that. They're like, oh, I'm a wonderful singer. And you're like, why don't you sing something? You're like, okay, yeah, you're a singer, right? But he, he's a talented, he thought he was a talented musician, right? He thought he was an incredible poet. So he thought his writing was absolutely in, incredible. He thought he was this great chariot racer. And even though like all of these things, really, really actually fairly mediocre at all of these things that he did. But that doesn't stop him from largely just kind of parading around like he was the best at everything, right? No way, not a chance. He's the emperor. Who's going to tell him, actually, you're a terrible musician, right? Like no one's going to say that to him. 
And so he loved just basking in glory and basking in attention and all these things, especially when it came to his musical performances. And so he would organize like these extravagant concerts and and force high-ranking officials, even even force common folk to sit through hours of not-so-impressive singing and lyre playing, right? Like that's just who he was. Like, you know what? I'm the emperor. You guys are all going to come over. You're going to listen to me sing until I am done singing. And so that's large, but so his pride, though, like I said, didn't stop at music, right? He loved architecture and wanted to leave this lasting legacy. And so that's when this brand new massive palace largely comes in. And it was supposed to be really lavish, over the top, right? Uh, uh, complete with gardens and lakes and, and even a rotating dining room, as a matter of fact, right? He spared no expense to satisfy these massive desires that he had, largely just like, like this throne unto, unto himself. But here's the catch. Here's the issue. Like I said, he wanted to build this right in the heart of Rome, If you ever have tried to build something in the heart of a city that's already densely populated, you know that largely this is going to be an issue, and this is going to require some serious space. So what did Nero do? He came up with a rather brilliant solution. At least he thought it was a brilliant solution. He decided to burn down a significant portion of the city in order to make way for his palace. Right? He didn't call bulldozers in, didn't get the right permits or anything like that. He was just like, you know what, I'm going to light some stuff on fire. That's what I'll do. I'll make some space for my palace now at, a, at that point. So in his like, twisted logic, he thought it was a great idea to set Rome, the very city, the very area that he was, going to, like, that he was emperor over, that he was going to just light it on fire. And so it ravaged the city, actually, for for days. It destroyed a ton of different homes, buildings, landmarks, right? Chaos and panic. They start going forth as people are trying to save lives, salvage anything that they possibly could. And so while, while Nero was busy reveling in his own glory, Rome was burning, literally. It was literally burning to the ground. And the people of Rome, they're devastated. But guess what Nero did? Nero, instead of kind of rushing to help or showing any sort of empathy or anything like that, he literally played the fiddle poorly while Rome burned. That's that's how much he he cared about what was going on. A lot of us, like I said, probably know the name Nero because of the fact you've been in church. And he's he's famous, actually, for persecuting Christians, right? As the story goes, Nero actually needed someone to blame for the fire, Right? He wasn't going to just be like, oh, yeah, I lit that fire. He needed somebody to kind of push that blame onto. So he shifted the blame onto the religious minority that was currently gaining popularity at the time, the Christians. Right? So that's, what, that's largely what, what Nero did. And so his pride kind of made him see Christians as a threat to his rule. So he unleashed like this wave of actually vicious persecution towards Christians then at that point. Right? They were falsely accused. They were arrested. They are subjected to brutal torture, subjected to, to execution. Some were even used as torches to light up Nero's gardens at night. When I say some, I mean literal Christians, they would tie them to poles, light people on fire to light his gardens at night. And all this is part of his grand plan to divert attention from his own role in the city's devastation. Right? His goal was to target the Christians, shift the blame, consolidate his power. It was a dark and twisted chapter in Roman history. 
And so eventually Nero's reign he comes, comes to an end. He faced rebellion, realized his days were numbered, and then he took his own life in 68 AD. And he left behind a legacy of cruelty, left behind a legacy of destruction. And so Nero's pride literally led him to burn Rome to pursue his architectural dreams. That's, that was his goal. And in his quest to save face, he decided to persecute innocent Christians, right? It serves as a stark reminder of how unchecked pride and how self-interest can lead to devastating consequences for other people. And granted, that's a pretty massive, massive example. Most of us are like, well, I'm not going to burn down Hanford. I'm not going to burn down Lamore because of my pride or anything like that. Right? But pride largely is a massive issue. And I don't share that to talk about the persecution of Christians, which of course is terrible. Right? I share that because the guy's pride and arrogance was ultimately his downfall. But the reason I said earlier that this week is going to deal with the single largest issue facing humanity is because while the wisdom we gather is about the idea of not being prideful, the idea of pride, the sin of pride is one that is at the root of all other sin. And we just don't think about it. We don't consider the idea of pride. But, but think about your life for a second, right? Every sin that you or I have committed is done because we want to do something other than what God tells us we should do, right? Think about even just the idea of sin, right? Sin is doing something outside of God's will, outside of God's law, outside of what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, whatever it may be, right? If you are acting apart from God, if you're acting apart from the Holy Spirit, largely that is sin. And in that moment, we are making ourselves the Lord of our own lives, the Lord of our own destinies. C.S. Lewis, actually, he put it this way. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Namely, God, obviously, is what he's talking about there. So pride can, can have a powerful and transformative effect on individuals. Right? It can lead them to see themselves as their own gods. And so when, when pride takes hold, pride largely, it inflates oneself of, or one's sense of their own self-worth and superiority to such an extent that they begin to believe that they are above everyone and they are above everything else. And so as that pride largely continues to grow, it blinds individuals to their own flaws. It blinds you and I to, to our own kind of blind spots. It, it, it blinds us to our limitations. It blinds us to the perspective of other people. And so when pride takes over, largely people become consumed by their own ego, believing that they then are their own ultimate authority and that their opinions, their desires, their actions, those things should always prevail. I am right, and I'm not going to budge on it. Those things, like this excessive self-focus, largely leads them to disregard the needs, disregard the feelings and experiences of those people who are, who are around them. And so when we're in this state, like prideful individuals begin to exalt themselves above any other sort of, sort of higher power, any other sort of moral authority. They start to believe at that point that they are the sole arbiters of truth and righteousness, that I am the one who sets the law. I am the one who sets what is wrong and right. Their own judgment becomes absolute and they reject any notion of accountability or humility. 
Why? Because they're considering themselves as their own gods, right? Prideful individuals become enslaved to their own desires and their own ambitions. There's no room for anybody else's opinion. And so they prioritize largely their interest and, 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 and validation above everything else, even at the expense of other people who they would claim that they care about, right? And so they would engage in, could engage in manipulative, unethical, different behaviors. They lack empathy. They lack compassion for those people who don't serve their personal pr- uh, purposes, So think about it for a second, right? Uh, When you think about the idea of pride and how it's tied to all other sin, I'm just going to, let's take a drive right now down Fargo Avenue from 43 towards the church, right? And you're driving down and you're like, you know what, I got to go to the church. and, And all of a sudden, you pass 12th Avenue and you realize that that road is actually blocked off. You can't go any further. I, I may have done that three, four times now, right? That's the reality. I mean, I get on cruise control and I'm going to work. I'm just like, this is the way that I go to work, right? And so my frustration is that there is no sign at 12th and Fargo that says this is not a through street, right? It's like 100 yards further down. Who's looking 100 yards down the road? Not me, right? I'm too busy texting. That was a joke. That was a joke, okay? But I don't see the sign when I'm there. So I'm like in the lane to go straight. And I'm just thinking to myself, how can these people be so bad at their jobs that they don't put a sign closer saying that this street doesn't go all the way through? All of a sudden, in that moment, I am, I am my own God. I am the own moral authority of what is right and what is wrong like as far as how it is that I am supposed to get to work or road closures or road construction. Like I know anything about that world, but I become my own God in that instance rather than simply thinking to myself, okay, they are doing their best. I'm going to show empathy and humility. They are doing their best to make this road a better road for me in the future. And so because of that, I am going to simply sit on my blinker while I'm in the straight lane and wait for somebody to let me in, right? No, no, no. All of a sudden, I have to vilify those other people. Why? Because my own pride has now gotten in the way, right? And so beyond all that, like this godlike perception It can lead to detachment from reality. Like prideful individuals can largely kind of construct their own narratives. And they can can distort facts. They can ignore objective truths. Like there is a sign 100 yards away. You just weren't looking, dummy. Right? Like you can see some of those things that all of a sudden it's not true. Why? Because, because of their own elevated self-image. And then they end up surrounding themselves with people who fuel their ego, validate their delusions, further reinforcing their godlike status in their own minds. That's what happened with Nero. Everybody who went to see him play, did anybody stand up and be like, dude, you're terrible. I'm leaving. No. Why? Fear? Echo chamber? I don't know, whatever it may be. But beyond the fact that the consequences of pride are usually pretty terrible... God is complete, completely and totally against the idea of pride as well. Proverbs 16.5. I got a couple of verses for you here. Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. That verse alone should remind us that pride is a miserable sin to deal with. Or Proverbs 3.34. He mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed 
So God actually shows favor to the humble, shows favor to the oppressed people of the world. But beyond that, the original sin for Adam and Eve is pride. All the way back, Genesis chapter 3, that was pride. It wasn't simply because they did something that they weren't supposed to do. That it, it was Eve acting in such a way that she was like, you know what, serpent, Satan, you're right. I can be like God. He doesn't want me to be like him. And so because of that, I'm going to take this fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and I'm going to eat it so then I can be like God. Pride. Satan's fall from heaven. He desired to exalt himself above God. Pride. The rich man who wanted to get into heaven, who left sad. Pride. Tower of Babel. That's a Genesis chapter 11. Right? In this story, the, the, the people of Babel, they sought to build a tower that was going to reach, reach the heavens, symbolizing the pride and desire for self-glory. And so God intervened, scattered all of them, causing confusion within all of their languages, right? Or maybe the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, right? And Jesus, he tells a parable about two individuals who are praying in the temple. And then there's this proud Pharisee, this guy, religious leader of the law, and he boasted about his righteousness. He's like, God, thank you that I'm not a poor sinner like this one over here. Well, he's praying. Pride. But Jesus emphasized that humility before God is more important than self-righteous pride. King Herod, Acts chapter 12, right? King Herod Agrippa, this is King Herod Agrippa the first, super arrogant guy. He accepted the praise and adoration of his, of his people. He attributes his greatness to himself instead of giving, giving glory to God. And as a result, he's struck down by an angel and met with a, a pretty gnarly end. You can read about it on your own. Read about King Herod Agrippa the first's death. So why is pride bad? Because proud men don't care about God. Proud people don't care about God. They have become the God of their own little worlds. Psalm 10.4 even says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. This is all over scripture. And we're sitting here and we never talk about, we never even think about this sin of pride. Unless it's like on the soccer field, right, or on the baseball field. Like, man, that kid is arrogant. And it's never your own kid. It's the other kid who's arrogant, right? That's the only time we ever think about the idea of pride. Like, like people who are proud, they couldn't care less about seeking God or acknowledging his existence. Because in their minds, there simply is no one, nothing greater than them. Their pride blinds them to the spiritual realm. It blinds them and makes them reject the idea of a higher power or any sense of accountability at that point. This verse actually draws a really clear contrast between the mindset of the wicked and the call to actively seek and actively acknowledge God. It shows just how dangerous pride can be, right? It largely distorts our perspective and prevents us from pursuing truth and righteousness. And so the wicked, in their arrogance, believe they can live their lives independently without caring about moral principles, without caring about divine guidance. In any way, they are totally self-assured, relying solely on their own understanding and brushing off any need for God in their lives. Like, no, I'm good. I got things figured out. And beyond that, this verse also points out the consequences of pride. 
Because by refusing to acknowledge God's existence, the wicked cut themselves off from the source of wisdom. As this is saying, proud people are cutting themselves off from the source of wisdom, from the source of love, from the source of redemption. Like their rejection of God leads them down a path of moral decay and spiritual emptiness. And we don't talk about it. But on the flip side, the psalmist encourages a, a, a more humble stance, right? Recognizing that, that true fulfillment and true righteousness can only be found when we seek and honor the creator. That's it. And so in a nutshell, the verse exposes the destructive power of pride, stops people from seeking God, recognizing his presence, but it also highlights the importance of humility. So it's not just don't be proud. Also, we need to practice the idea of humility. And so through humility, we can open ourselves up to God's guidance, to God's wisdom, to God's transformative work in our life. So then the question becomes, I think we can all understand being proud is bad. God detests prideful people. Um, the question then becomes, are you prideful? Are you and I prideful people? And I don't normally ask questions like this, but I think all of us here would agree that being arrogant and prideful is no way to actually honor God. So how do you know? How do you know if you are a proud person? Because I think most of us in here are like, no, nah, it's not me. I think the most obvious sign that, that you're proud, that you're arrogant, is that you have kind of a sense of superiority. Right? And you find yourself looking down on other people dismissing largely their opinions or believing that you are always right, regardless of the circumstance that you are always, always right. right? Pride can largely lead to a, a condescending attitude, a refusal to consider other people's perspectives, right? It's like think about the stoplight or the, the signage or lack of signage on Fargo and 12th. Just like, no, I'm dismissing that. Like, you, you made a poor decision there. My decision is actually the right decision. Forget about all of the houses up there that need to get into their driveways. Like, that sign needs to be right up against 12th and Fargo. I'm going to dismiss what it is you said, even though I have zero expertise in that area. I mean, it happens with me for driving all the time. Someone stops too long at a stop sign. What are you doing? Like, you are distracted. Get off your phone. Someone rolls a stop sign. What are you doing? Like, pay attention. It's always the phone. Get off your phone, right? If it, like, like, there is a 0.2 and 0.5 second buffer that those people have to stop at the right amount of time that I'm going to be okay with. Why? Because I think my way is correct. And they may say, no, my way is, is correct. That's when you see pride start creeping in. Or maybe that's not it for you. Maybe you don't feel like you are above other people or, or, or anything like that. Maybe, though, you have this constant need for validation. That's another sign that maybe you're a proud people. Like if you're constantly seeking external validation and approval, you base your own self-worth largely on the opinions of other people. That can be a sign of pride. Tell me I did good. Tell me, tell me, like, are you proud of me, right? Prideful individuals often crave admiration and constantly seek affirmation to boost their ego. Like, did I do a good job? Did I do a good job? Did I do a good job? 
Or maybe that's not it. Maybe you're on the other side and you have a really hard time, a really hard time accepting feedback or criticism. If you become maybe defensive or dismissive or resistant when receiving any sort of, any sort of feedback or constructive criticism, right, that may indicate pride because pride can make it hard for us to admit mistakes or acknowledge areas where improvement is needed in our lives. Or maybe that's, maybe that's not it. Even the inability to apologize or take responsibility for something. You're like, oh, no, that wasn't, that was them. That wasn't my fault. That was, that was, the, like, if you find it difficult to apologize sincerely or take responsibility for your own actions, that is a sign of pride as well, right? Prideful individuals often struggle to admit fault and maybe they shift blame towards other people largely to protect their own self-image or this excessive need for control that oftentimes people have. You want to control everything? You're probably struggling with pride. Pride often stems from belief that one's own way is the best or the only way. And because that, it leads to their need to assert dominance and control different situations. And maybe the sneakiest one, if you struggle with comparison and envy, if you're constantly looking over the fence at somebody else thinking, you know what, oh, of course they have that. Man, I really want that. Or you're constantly just comparing yourself to other people you feel envious or resentful towards their success or their possessions or whatever, like that could be a sign of pride. Because pride can largely make us believe that we deserve more or better or at least the very same than other people. And it fosters this sense of entitlement largely. And maybe those things in themselves are isolated. Maybe those things in themselves aren't connected to your own ego. But remember, the ironic truth is, is that this illusion of godhood that I am in charge, that I am, I am kind of the Lord of my own life, it's fragile and it's ultimately self-destructive. Pride actually blinds individuals to their own weaknesses and it prevents them from seeking personal growth, prevents them from learning from their mistakes. Largely, it isolates them from genuine connection and hinders their ability to form meaningful relationships. So because of that, pride can lead individuals to their own downfall. It's the pursuit of their self-serving agenda without consideration for other people. And that eventually creates this chasm between them and the world. And they will find themselves oftentimes lonely, unfulfilled, and incapable of sustaining, sustaining this facade of a godlike superiority that they've constructed. One of the most famous verses that people love to quote is Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Pride goes before the fall, right? That's where this comes from. Pride comes, so it should be pretty obvious that the consequences of pride are terrible. But I think the real question, the real issue today isn't, 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 isn't pretty, but, but the fact that we simply don't care much about identifying it in our own lives because it's a sin that isn't an outward expression for the most part. Something you have to deal with with your young kids, like, no, don't be arrogant, don't show up other people, blah, 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 whatever. But for the most part, it's not an outward expression. It's not as cut and dry as lying is, right? So I think step one is to admit that we have an issue, or at the very least, 
admit to ourselves that there is potential for pride existing in our lives. I know it's something that I struggle with. C.J. Mahaney, he actually put it, put it this way. He writes, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. There's a famous writer that says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller, famous pastor, theologian, calls this the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That we don't glorify God by minimizing the good gifts that God has given us. We need to think of ourselves honestly in light of God's word and take a healthy pride in what God is doing in us and through our lives. Paul talks about this regularly, that he's not going to boast about himself. He's going to boast about what God has done. That's who he's going to make famous. That's largely who he's going to make known. And so next, I think we need to combat it. Right, in the same way that I had a list to tell you for prideful, there's some things you can do to help combat this pervasive sin. First, check your attitude. Check your attitude. When it comes to combating pride, it's all about checking our attitude. Let's keep our ego in check, right? And remember that we are called to be humble instead of boasting about our achievements or seeking validation from others. Our goal should be to shift our focus towards glorifying God and acknowledging his grace in our lives, right? So I think that's the first one, check your attitude. I think the second one then would be, would be to practice, practice gratefulness or practice gratitude in a very real way. It's easy to get caught up in the me, myself, and I mentality, but combating pride, man, that largely means cultivating the idea of gratitude. So maybe that means taking time to reflect on God's goodness, his faithfulness in your life, or really sincere, like go write a handwritten note towards somebody, to somebody, thanking them for something that they have done. Better yet, don't just mail it to them. Write the note and then go read it to them. Serve other people. That's one of the best ways to combat pride. Go look somebody else in the face who you think you are better than, who you think you could do a better job than them. Go sit across the table from that person and serve them in some way. Become lower than them. It's really easy to look at, at other states or look at other cities and be like, man, that place is a mess. All the people who live there are stupid, blah, whatever it may be. Go serve those people. Check your pride in that way. Seek accountability. This is something that I have in my life. I asked my buddy, I was like, hey, every two weeks, can you just like text me and ask me how my pride is doing? to make sure that I have my own ego in check, make sure I'm boasting about what God is doing in my life and not boasting about what I am doing in my life. Please just shoot me a text. That's all I need you to do. So seek that accountability. And the last one, honestly, I think it's prayer and surrender, right? I think that needs to be our goal. But can I just say that, that I think we just simply just need to imagine what the church would look like if the body of Christ exemplified humility rather than pride? Like we would be marked by unity and love because of the fact that our humility would foster a spirit of grace throughout the church. That it wouldn't be about us, that we would check our own egos at the door. We do a production meeting on Sunday mornings before we come out here to make sure we have transition rights and right and make sure that Brian knows what announcements to make and all that stuff, right? He was there. Um, but largely we pray, we pray after that meeting. 
And either I pray or Pastor Jeff will pray or we have other prayers sometimes. Um, but largely our prayer is, God, don't make this morning about us. Don't make this morning about how good that we can personally be or anything like that. God, we want you to have all of the glory. And so, God, check our egos at the door. Allow it to not be about us. Would we miss a note or we mess up an announcement? He didn't really mess up that bad. I really threw him under the bus this morning. Um, or when I stumble and I say something that I shouldn't say or my notes have something misspelled and I say a word that I didn't mean to say, right? That it's okay because it's not about us. It's about us giving glory to God in a very, very real way. It's not about our ego, right? Like our witness would be more authentic to the world if we practice humility instead of pride, instead of projecting an image of superiority or self-righteousness Onto, uh, like onto ourselves, humility would reflect this honest acknowledgement largely of our own, our own flaws and our need for God's grace, right? The church would be seen as a place of humility and compassion and acceptance that we would attract those people who are seeking a genuine encounter with God at that point. And so I think now more than ever, the world doesn't need a church that only cares about being right. The world needs a church who cares about the truth but shows humility in the way it encounters people. That's what the church needs to be about. That's the type of church people want to be a, want to be a part of, a church that exemplifies Jesus dying on the cross for the worst of our sins, that he was innocent. And if anybody had the right to be proud about who he was, it was that guy. And he didn't. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was crucified, he's sweating blood saying, God, please take, there's any other way, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Why? Because he's innocent and he knew that there was going to be separation between him and the Father. But still, he's like, I'm, uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Why? Humility. And he had a job to come and do, that he didn't think of himself any greater than the Father. He actually willingly submitted to him and became man, stretched himself into skin and went to the cross for our sins. And so that's largely why we take time on the first Sunday of the month to, to remember this. So I'm going to invite the band out here, and we're going to shift to our time of, of communion and so if you didn't receive communion elements on your way in, you can just raise your hand real high. Um, don't be prideful. Don't look around the room and be like, forgot your communion. No. Raise your hand real high. We'll have members of our diaconate come and, come and take care of you. But here at, uh, at FBH, we believe in what's called an open table. And an open table largely means that you don't have to be a member of FBH to receive communion with us, but we would ask that you are a member of the body of Christ, meaning you have made a profession of faith and you have called Jesus Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. We would love to receive communion with you for the first time as a brand new believer. But that being said, church, I think it's worth us looking at our own egos. It's worth us looking like just doing like this internal evaluation of ourselves and thinking like, where am I proud? Where is pride contributing to the other sin in my life? How is pride at the root of my anger towards my wife 
or towards my kids? How is pride getting in the way of, of being financially secure? Because if you trace all of these little things back, the root of all of it is us wanting to be our own God. And communion stands in stark contrast with that idea. When we receive the bread and we receive the juice, we are, we are willingly saying, I am not the Lord of my life. There is someone greater than me who went to the cross to die on my behalf. And I'm gonna now do my best every single day to follow him in such a way that I am a humble person, boasting not in myself, but boasting in what God has done in and through me. That's what communion's about. And so this is what's gonna happen. We're gonna pray in just a second. I'm gonna give you a chance to respond. Say yes to Jesus if you've never yet said yes to him, to re-up if you're, you feel like, man, your relationship with Jesus is on the rails right now. Like, okay, let's get it taken care of. But then after we're done praying, we're gonna sing a little bit. And during that time, do that mental internal evaluation. Man, if you need to admit some sin to God, you need to repent in a very real way, I would ask you to repent in that moment. I don't know what it is, but just simply commune with God in that time. You wanna sing and just worship God, you wanna stand, you wanna kneel, we don't care. It's between you and God, it's not about anybody else. But then we're gonna sing for a little bit and after that we're gonna receive communion together. I'll walk us through it. And then after that we're gonna sing, we're gonna get some shaved ice, and we're gonna go sit in some air conditioning in our home. Sound good? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for the example that he set. We're thankful that there is a very real physical representation of your son that we hold in our hands right now that he instituted. That the reminder of the cross and what Jesus walked through, just Jesus going to the cross for us stands in contrast with our own pride. If we say that we believe that Jesus died for our sin, that we cannot say that we are our own Lord of our lives. So God, help us put ourselves to death in this moment. And if you're never yet said yes to Jesus, if that's you with head still bowed and eyes still closed, or you've simply strayed away and you think, I really need to get my relationship with God back to where it's supposed to be. If that's you, 